0: Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David.
1: And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Goblet of Fire. Today we will be discussing celebrity culture in the Wizarding World, Hagrid's new crush, and what Dumbledore is thinking when Harry's name comes out of the goblet.
0: Everyone is buzzing about Victor Crumb being at Hogwarts.
1: As they sit in the Great Hall, the students observe each other, and then Dumbledore welcomes the guests, and the feast begins.
0: A beautiful girl from Beaubaton comes over to the Gryffindor table to get a plate of food, and Ron is absolutely mesmerized, along with many of his fellow male students.
1: During the feast, Ludo Bagman and Barty Crouch Sr. arrive and sit at the head table.
0: Dumbledore announces that Bagman and Crouch will join the heads of schools as judges for the Triwizard Tournament.
1: Dumbledore explains the rules of the tournament. There will be three champions and three tasks. Whoever gets the most points wins the Triwizard Cup and a thousand galleons of prize money. The adjudicator of entrance will be the magical Goblet of Fire. Those who wish to compete can submit their names over the next 24 hours.
0: If your name emerges from the Goblet of Fire, you are magically bound to compete. No one under the age of 17, that is, of age, of adult age, is allowed to enter, and an age line will be drawn by Dumbledore in order to prevent underage entrants from doing so.
1: Fred and George are determined to beat the age line, and Harry is unsure about whether he would enter or not.
0: Harry has a brief run-in with Karkroff and the Durmstrang students. Mad-Eye Moody intervenes and clearly shows that he and Karkaroff know each other and do not exactly get along.
1: The next morning, students gather around the goblet, waiting for students to enter. Fred, George, and Lee Jordan have taken aging potions, but they are thrown out of the age line with long white beards, and Dumbledore appears to let them know, I told you so.
0: The trio go down to visit Hagrid and find him dressed in a horrible suit and tie, clearly having tried to do his hair. Hagrid is excited for them to see the tournament and implies he knows about what the first task is. He vehemently refuses to join SPEW.
1: Walking up to the castle, it becomes clear that Hagrid has a crush on Madame Maxime.
0: The Halloween feast begins that evening, and everyone waits eagerly for the champions' names to be revealed.
1: The champions are read Out by Dumbledore, Victor Crumb from Durmstrang, Fleur Delacour from Beauxbatons, and Cedric Diggory from Hogwarts. And Harry Potter. Let's talk about Crumb as a celebrity figure here. Because this is kind of one of the first times that we have seen... I mean, obviously they saw you know him and they saw the players at the World Cup. But this is the first time that we've really kind of seen a celebrity that's not Harry.
0: Yeah, that's you know, a good point. Interacting
1: yeah. with... Um, certainly the students at Hogwarts, but just in general in the series, mm-hmm. you know, we, because Harry is a celebrity in this sort of like a secret, like, you know, Oh, something bad happened to him way. Um, we haven't really, you know, gotten the perspective of what it's like to be around a celebrity like this with the
0: exception maybe of Lockhart, who was a professional, That's true. That's a professional true. celebrity. That's <laughs> he wasn't true. really famous for actually doing anything. Um,
1: So, really, this is like, I mean, Crum is, you know, it's like the sports star. So it's almost Mm -hmm. like, okay, you're seeing like, I don't know, LeBron James or something like in the flesh. But instead of being like, you know, very like publicity friendly in a way, Crum seems
0: sullen, reserved, very mad.
1: Yeah. Just like not happy to be there. Yeah.
0: Not, not very interested in people. Maybe he's just shy. Ron was really surprised that Crum is school age still.
1: Right, right.
0: You know, he has this reputation for being the best seeker in the world. Um, and he's only 17 or 18, mm-hmm. maybe.
1: Yeah, he kind of reminds me of, like, someone who, I don't know, it, it seems like we don't really, I and mean, we we never really do learn a lot about him, which is what's interesting about Crum. It's like, yeah. obviously, we get to know him more throughout this book, and then he and Hermione sort of date, but, like, we don't really know about him or his motivations, and what kind of, like, I don't know, makes him tick. Like, if he truly enjoys being the best seeker in the world, or if he <laughs> doesn't like the fame, or if he really would want to be doing something else. Like, does he want to be entering the tournament? Is he just getting pressure from Karkaroff?
0: Yeah, you're right. We don't really get a lot of information about his motivations, and I think that makes him compelling in a way, Um because you're always curious about like, why is crumb doing this and that and the other thing? I think on the one hand, um, he probably entered the tournament for the same reason. Basically everybody else did, you know, he wants to win some fame and glory and maybe some money too. Um, not that he really needs any of those things. He's already really famous. Um, but you know, people still enter the tournament. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. The fact is that the goblet of fire seems to choose the people that are, the most prestigious people who apply it seems like.
1: yes and i definitely want to talk more about that in this chapter so
0: i think one of the things we could say about crumb is that he is like the best student at durmstrang maybe not in terms of academic ability but certainly in terms of like his adjudicated worth as a wizard so far by the goblet of fire
1: true true
0: and speaking of We should talk about the fact that Crumb and Fleur are basically introduced as fully fleshed out characters in this chapter. Mm -hmm. We were introduced to Crumb as a character before, but not in person. And then Fleur, of course, we don't know anything about until this chapter. Um, And that was clearly intentional because the author wanted to have a scene that set up each of them first before their names come out of the goblet. So that we're a little bit more engaged in that process.
1: Right. Right. So we see, you know, Fleur coming up. Asking for the food from the table. Mm-hmm. And we see that, you know, there's some rumblings about whether she is Vila or not. Because right. she's kind of giving the reaction that is similar to the reaction of the Vila. She's obviously very beautiful. But and we do find out that her grandmother was Vila mm-hmm. um, in the future. But at this time, she's just a very beautiful girl. And she comes up and we see her and we're just kind of like, oh, okay. When her name gets pulled out, it's like, well, she must be, you know, talented as well. And she must yeah. be... um you know, a really good witch.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that we don't we still really don't know much about Fleur at no. this point. All we know is that she's extremely beautiful and that she likes bully bass.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and that she's not that impressed with Hogwarts. But uh other than that, yeah. All we all we really know about her is her name. Um So then we get to uh Bagman and Crouch are back. Mm-hmm. Although they seem a little bit different. Um Crouch seems even more withdrawn and reserved than before, and um, Bagman seems kind of like his old self, although I think they detect a little bit of unease about him. Anxiety, yeah. Anxiety, maybe.
1: So what do we know about what's actually going on with the two of them right now?
0: Well, um, Crouch is under the Imperious Curse Mm -hmm. by Wormtail and Mm -hmm. is not in control of any of his actions. He's just being used as a puppet. Um, And uh, Bagman is in debt a lot of money to some goblins that he bet on the Quidditch world cup or Mm -hmm. something with. Um, and so he is under a lot of stress from that. Right. And is trying to figure out a way out of it.
1: Yeah. So I think those are two underlying characters that, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot to do in in terms of like the events in the next like few chapters, but I think it's important to like track what's going on with them because there's obviously a lot of underlying stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, that does eventually affect our main characters. Right. So I do want to talk about the moment with Moody and Karkaroff, speaking of Crouch.
0: Yeah, that's a cool moment.
1: Um, So in this moment, from like the reader's perspective, we see Moody and Karkaroff interacting. Clearly they know each other. Clearly yeah, well, they so, don't like each other. So
0: Karkaroff stops at the, at the entrance hall. Yes. Harry opens the door and holds it for him. And Cockroft brushes by and he's like, thank you. And then he kind of does a double take, looks at Harry's scar. Harry's like, I'm very familiar with this process. Mm-hmm. This has happened to me a million times. Um, so he's like, yep, it's me. I'm Harry Potter. And Cockroft mm-hmm. is like, whoa. And then Moody kind of like intervenes and is like, yep, that's Harry Potter. Move mm-hmm. along. Move along, Cockroft. <laughs> so what are your thoughts about, about that interaction?
1: Well, I think, you know, seeing that we know like, okay, Moody is... And an or um,
0: yeah,
1: Karkaroff, we don't know anything about him, but he seems kind of sketch at this moment. Yeah. And, sure. you know, seems a little evilly looking. Um, <laughs> and I mean, we know that he actually is a death eater, but in this moment, it's kind of like, okay, we get even more as a first time reader, we get even more evidence to be suspicious of Karkaroff because Moody is clearly yeah not a friend of his, not a fan. And, does not want him to be around Harry.
0: This is another subtle way for the author to get us as a reader to trust Moody more, <laughs> yes, too. Exactly. Because we may already have had misgivings about Karkaroff based on how he kind of is described as insincere or, like, putting on airs or whatever. Um, might, might be a little bit rude to some of his less fortunate students. Um, not very sympathetic. And then Moody comes along and kind of confirms our bias— about Karkarov that like Moody doesn't like him either. He is physically putting himself on the side of Harry Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, like also by definition, because Harry is kind of our third person limited narrator um, ourselves Mm -hmm. on, on his side. So we're sort of Moody is placing himself on the reader's side in in a sense, which is great writing because of course, this is all a misdirection and Moody is actually the mastermind behind this whole scheme um, through Voldemort. Uh, And so, you know, this is another way of building up trust not only with Harry in the book, but with the reader.
1: Right, right. Um,
0: And so that when the twist comes, it's even more satisfying for that Mm -hmm. reason. Um, And it's not as though there aren't clues or hints throughout the series, throughout the book rather, um, about like the fact that Moody might not be his real self. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about some of those when they come up later on. But um, I think it's a really deft writing of this character that there are so many times when he deliberately places himself on the side of Harry or the reader um, in order to gain trust and, and yes, give us that perspective.
1: It's a, it's very, very well crafted of us learning to trust Moody. And, you know, I think this book, if, if it weren't the Mr. Act, it could be like, Oh, Moody's kind of a scary character, but he turns out to be, you know, actually uh, a really important figure in Harry's life, like sort of like what ends up happening with Sirius, Mm -hmm. you know, it could sort of, you could see the book going in that direction as like, we're learning, you know, we're learning about him and he's, he's really tough, but he's a good guy at heart. And um, I think that's kind of the direction that we assume things are going in until um, the twist happens.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that the trope, maybe, in Harry Potter of, like, the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher is not who they say they are, Mm -hmm. is true in every book through this one. Mm -hmm. But in each one, I think the author very deftly does it differently enough that it's not rote. Right. At this point. Exactly. Like, Like, we are expecting there to be something weird about the Defense Against the Dark Arts position, but... The way we're introduced to Moody as a character and the mm-hmm. things that he does, we're like,
1: it's already weird enough. Like, yeah, we don't it's need it's enough. weird enough, yeah. and,
0: and we trust him. Like that, yeah. that's why it's important to establish that trust with the reader because we are so used to the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher being like a secret scumbag or hiding some dark mm-hmm. secret. You know, Quirrell literally had Voldemort in the back of his head. Lockhart was just like a con man. Lupin was great, but he was also a werewolf, mm-hmm. and he didn't tell anybody about that. So, like, we need some buildup of trust in order to to get there with the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. And they they are doing that, which I think is important to note.
1: Okay, let's talk briefly about um, SPW, because I think we always have to note it when it really comes up in some way (laughs) in the chapter, um, as we're tracking throughout time. So, um, Hagrid gets... uh, Faced with Hermione when they go to visit him. Yeah. Trying to make a case, describe what's going on with her movement, trying to get him to be a member. And he vehemently refuses and, you know, is basically saying the kind of thing that other people have been saying, which is like, they want to be there. You know, they don't they don't want you to fight for them in this way. Yeah. Um,
0: but I think it's always interesting to unpack people's motivations for taking right. that position. I agree. Um because, like, we as the reader know that that's in- an injustice. So Hagrid, being the super compassionate person mm-hmm. who empathizes with monstrous creatures all the time, why would he take the position that the current state of affairs for house elves is not only acceptable, but should be encouraged?
1: You know, I think one thing that doesn't necessarily paint him in the best light is that, like, he is also sort of a marginalized group being, um, you know half giant being like this being outcast in a lot of ways at at Hogwarts Mm -hmm. and just in the wizarding world and um Hal's Elves are one of the people that are you know creatures that are below him and even though he I think is so you know he he obviously cares so much about like magical creatures in general Mm -hmm. I think Hal's Elves are this weird mesh between like sort of person and creature which is like part of the reason why this issue is complicated with SPW. Yeah. Um and so I think that Hagrid maybe thinks of them more as like a class of person as opposed to a creature that like needs his support and and kind of like guidance. And he may think like in some ways like he you know, he is in some ways like a servant as well even though Mm-hmm. He is, you know, paid presumably for his role. Like, he is a care- he's a caretaker, so he does similar work. And I think he wants there to be in some ways. Again, not really consciously, but, like, wants there to be this class that is below him.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's that. Maybe the way I see it is more of, like... Hagrid seems to me to be the kind of person who wants to let everyone do their own thing. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really try to, like, impose his will on other beings that much. Um, and he doesn't really like special accommodations to be made Mm -hmm. for, like, different groups. Like, he's like, you know, the centaurs are there and I just want to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. I'll occasionally, like, ask them for help if I need it. But, like, I know that they want to be left alone, so I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, um... That's true, When yeah. he, like, goes to send... As an envoy to the Giants at the end of this book and at the beginning of next book. Um, his, like, dealings with them, he wasn't trying to, like, make them something that they weren't. He was mm-hmm. trying to talk to them on their own terms. So maybe he's just, like, taking the position that house elves can handle themselves and that if they want freedom mm-hmm. and not to have to work all the time, that, like, they can handle themselves and they should just do it. But the fact, like... From Hagrid's perspective, mm-hmm. it looks very much like the house elves want that. Sure. So he's like, yeah. just let them do it. You just know? let
1: them, yeah. Don't don't interfere. It in, makes like,
0: them happy. So why would you want to take that away from them?
1: Right. Um, it, it's
0: it's interesting. I think I think we can't ascribe to Hagrid the position that he is, um, in favor of any classism because no. there's nothing in his character that suggests. Again, that.
1: I don't think that that he is really in any way, but he may. You know, I don't know if he's, like, thinks that house elves are equal to him.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's unclear. Um,
1: Which is but fine, but I guess... You know, he
0: certainly wants them to be treated well.
1: He wants them to be treated well, for sure. I don't think he wants them to treat, be treated poorly, but I think he is also, you know, in some ways, even though he's an exception to this, like, ironically, like, let everyone do what they want, but also, like, people should kind of be in their place.
0: Yeah, and maybe that's just down to, you know... A lack of education or maybe it's just because of who he is in the position that he is that he's happy in his own role as sort of below everybody else and he's like well if other people are happy in their role as below everybody else then that's fine
1: yeah or again i don't even i don't think that he's thinking that clearly about any of this stuff but yeah he might not these are maybe some of the like the underlying motivations but either way i think he's also like you know what, like, Hermione, like, we also kind of forget that he's an adult, I think sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, because he, in some ways, you know, doesn't act like one, or is, uh, you know. I like, mean, he's
0: not very well educated. And so. he's friends
1: with the kids, you know. Yeah, yeah, And it's, like, not weird. He's genuinely friends with them. But when he's sort of like, oh, Hermione, like, I think he's like, alright, this, like, 14-year-old is, like, trying to get <laughs> me to join this thing. Like, I think we, we also still sort of forget that, of like, alright, He might just be, like, a little bit like, all right, I don't want to, like, be in your, like, game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he just feels like she doesn't really understand. Right. Which, you know, there is... In some ways, she doesn't. In some ways, that's right. She she doesn't really fully understand. But I think (laughs) she's at least on the right track um, in terms of, you know, self-determination. But speaking of Hagrid, let's also talk about Hagrid and Maxime, because this is... um, as you were talking about, this book is kind of the blossoming of relationship awareness, Mm -hmm. romantic relationship awareness. Um, Hagrid seems to want some sort of romantic relationship with Maxime, even though they've, they've never really spoken to each other. He's just seen her possibly from afar. Um, What do you think he really wants? It seems like he wants romance. Um, We don't know of any time when he ever dated anybody Mm -hmm. before. Um, but do you think it's romance, or do you think it's more of, like, I see kinship between us, and I want a companion, someone who's equal to me?
1: I mean, I th- I think it's maybe a little bit of both, but I think it is genuine. I think it's genuine romance in the fact of, like, having kind of a crush in a, you know, maybe even in a more childlike way. But he wants to be, like, he's getting himself dressed up like I want to be, Yeah. you know, seen as attractive in mm-hmm. some way. Um. So I think it's genuine and I think, you know, we see kind of things go wrong over them later on when he is assuming that they are they that they are a more similar to each other than she wants to admit, right? Like
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of um there's there's possibly an analogy to being like in the closet with your sexuality or something, um, or your gender identity in that way. Of like Madame Maxime isn't out as uh, half giant yeah and ne- neither is haggard really but like he at least accepts it within himself that right. that that's who he is and, and she's she very much like not i'm not to. different
1: than anyone else she's not willing to admit yeah it. yeah yeah um and so yeah we can talk about that when it happens but i think like the, he is a saying like oh you know he sees her he sees that she's his size and mm-hmm. he's like wow this is you know my this isn't my kind of person like and yeah, literally. Literally. And, like, you know, is thinks that she's attractive. And also is probably the first time where he thinks, like, maybe I have a chance here. Like, maybe he has been, you know, um, you know, interested or attracted to people in the past. But just not even let himself think about it. Because he's like, they wouldn't, you know, go for me. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a different species in some ways. And so seeing her... Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks maybe he has a chance and I mean, it's cute. It is cute to have Hagrid going through this at the same time that the kids end up doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, especially like the kind of things that happen at the Yule Ball with all of them. So it's a nice plot line.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, and it is, it is, uh, played somewhat for laughs, but also in this chapter, just kind of like as... A very strange, out-of-character sure. thing for Hagrid to be, like, trying to dress up. And it just looks very out-of-place for him.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, back to what we started to talk about, which is, like, what is the kind of the mechanism of the Goblet of Fire? So we were saying that with Crumb, you know, it seems like he was picked maybe not just for his skills and, like, smarts, but because he's sort of, like, the most uh, famous, well-known, popular kind of um, student at, at Durmstrang or person that applied or whatever from Durmstrang. Yeah. And so I was wondering, and I don't know if we ever know this specifically, but, like, what kind of magic is the goblet? Is it like the sorting hat? You know, does it have a mind of its own where it is, it is actually, like, going through, I guess in this case, not the minds of students, but like analyzing the people somehow that it gets and then, um, you know, making a choice on its own. Um,
0: that's what I think. I I think that it is somehow magically enchanted with an intelligence that can receive a name and is able to magically know everything about that person and what it kind of, scores them on is uh, like a holistic understanding of them as a a witch or wizard and also sort of the prestige that 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 they bring so um there may be other factors as well that we just aren't really aware of but you know the pick of victor crumb clearly he's the most important most prestigious member of durmstrang's student body fleur de la Cur clearly is the most beautiful Mm -hmm. and capable witch at beaubaton Cedric certainly is probably one of the, the most capable wizards at Hogwarts mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, but he is also, in a lot of ways, a unity candidate for Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that I wanted to talk about a lot. Um, we'll get into Cedric more again as, as the book goes on because we learn much more about him as a character. But even from just what we know right now, um, for the first three books, the the narrative at Hogwarts really centers around the Gryffindor-Slytherin rivalry. Right. Uh, you know because harry is our sort of narrator um and that's that's the the lens through which we view most of the school so all the important characters are in gryffindor or in slytherin right um cedric is one of the first you know important figures that we see from another house cho chang being another one Mm -hmm. and mostly it's because they are other seekers right and harry plays against them but we also see that you know, Cedric has other qualities that make him a, a good wizard and a good person. You know, he's humble, mm-hmm. he's caring, he's thoughtful, he's a good friend, he's loyal and supportive, um, right. and and he apparently, you know, is very popular throughout the school, not just in Hufflepuff House, but, but in other houses as well.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of cool to see him, you know, because we don't know all those things about him yet, although we'll learn, like, because Harry will learn those things about him, but... It's it's interesting because it's almost like, oh, yeah, Harry and Ron and Hermione are kind of wrapped up in their own world of their own yeah. stuff, understandably, because they've had a lot going on. But also it's like it's almost like we get broken out of that spell when Cedric's name is called and, you know, Hufflepuff house goes crazy and everyone genuinely, you know, even if they're disappointed that it's not from their house, they seem like happy about it. Yeah. um. And it's sort of like, oh, this is like the guy that's been popular while we've all been like worrying about Harry. Is almost like. (laughs)
0: Right. And it's like we almost are pretending that he's not popular because we don't want to admit that someone from another house could be popular. Could be popular, yeah. But like, you know, Angelina Johnson puts her name in and we're like, oh, okay. Like someone from Gryffindor put their name in. But really, you know, Cedric was always going to be the champion based on based on what little information we had going in, he was the person that everybody was talking about. Um, and clearly, you know, the, the Goblet of Fire agrees. Um, another brief aside, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but, um, Hufflepuff house isn't well known for having like really important figures. It's got the reputation of being like the other house, the Mm -hmm. one that isn't Gryffindor Ravenclaw or Slytherin. Um, And so I think this is a very important moment for Hufflepuff House, um, being the leader of Hogwarts in this way, having the Hogwarts champion represent Hufflepuff House as well as Hogwarts. um, Right. You know, it brings a lot of glory to Hufflepuff House, and uh, that's something they haven't had in a long time. Um, And I think, you know, if there was the hand of Dumbledore somewhere in this decision, if he influenced the Goblet of Fire's decision in any way, I would understand that because... I think Cedric, as I said, is a unity candidate, and right now what Dumbledore wants more than anything else is unity, Mm -hmm. not just among the students of Hogwarts, but internationally um, between these three schools. So he doesn't just want Hogwarts to unify behind a single champion and support them. He also wants the champion of Hogwarts to be somebody that the other schools can look at with respect
1: and and potentially
0: admiration if that person were to win, to be like, he played fair, Mm -hmm. he played by the rules, and he won. You know, and I respect
1: and that. And I respect, yeah, yeah. And that's that was the other thought that I had about the sorting, uh, the sorting, <laughs> the goblet of fire. Yeah. <laughs> was that, you know, is there do the heads of um, schools, or houses, or anything have any input in, yeah. you know, who gets picked as the champion? And so it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like it, but you they know, they describe
0: the goblet as being impartial.
1: It's possible. I almost wonder if like. There is, you know, the goblet also has some powers to kind of assess what the general, at least what, like, how well that person is regarded by people that yeah. matter, like like Dumbledore. You know, right? They, they might have, the goblet might have those kinds of powers.
0: You wonder whether the goblet of fire ever picks a, a champion who is incredibly unpopular, but just really gifted. Mm, right. You know, like, if, if it had picked, for example, like, Draco Malfoy right. in, in some alternate universe where yep. it happened at a different time, um, you know, and Malfoy is super unpopular among a lot of the school, but, you know, he's pretty talented also.
1: And it sort of seems like no. Like, I guess that's that's my yeah. indicator is that, like...
0: It's almost as though the, the Goblet of Fire, yeah. like, took a, a poll of everybody yeah, and it, picked the best... It
1: seems a little bit like, a you poll. know, sort of popularity contest. Like, it, there obviously is merit behind that, and they all are very skilled, but, like, these are all people that are clearly popular in, in their... Yeah, in their schools. In their schools and with their peers. Um,
0: and well-regarded. I think that's the most important yeah, thing. Yeah, well-regarded. Is that each school has a champion that the whole school can rally behind. Right. And it's kind of expected of, like, who it is. So it's not, like, a
1: huge it's shock not a to shock. anybody. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, like... Yeah, like, who a political candidate is going to be. It's, like, right. it's yeah, not... Yeah, yeah. We all kind of know who it's going to be. Um, but speaking of Dumbledore's influence... Talking about the moment that Harry's name comes out of the goblet, obviously a very dramatic, intense moment. Um what I I wasn't, you know, we were talking about this beforehand, thinking about what does Dumbledore think in the moment when when the name comes out. Yeah. Um
0: It's it's a really it's a moment that seems to last an eternity in Dumbledore's yeah. mind.
1: And it's like, does he, you know, is he surprised? Does he know what's happened? Does he know what he wants to do? Does he have any doubts? And I think your opinion is that he he knows pretty much immediately that this is from dark magic. And that somebody that is involved with Voldemort somehow is trying to get Harry into the tournament.
0: Yeah, I mean, knowing what we know now, post reading the book and everything like that, obviously we have perfect knowledge of what's going on. But I think even if you put yourself in Dumbledore's shoes, in the moment when the Goblet of Fire lights up again after him reading Cedric's name, and a- and another piece of paper comes out, he should already be like, this isn't supposed to happen. Right, right. And the only way you could get the Goblet of Fire to somehow be confused enough to think that there's four schools that compete in the Triwizard Tournament. Mm-hmm. Is for you to have done an extremely powerful, like, dark magic charm on it. Right. Um, And, like, why would anyone bother doing that? Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, like, they have a goal in mind for, like, the fourth person that they have entered into this. And it, maybe it was themselves, but then, mm-hmm. like, who at Hogwarts would do something like that? Right. Well, when it's Harry's name that comes out, he's like, I know that Harry didn't enter himself. Mm-hmm. He didn't do this. So... Like someone else is trying to like get to Harry through the tournament, and because it's a binding contract of like if you enter, you have to compete. I now am required to put Harry in grave danger at least three times. But that's this what year. I'm.
1: That's what I want to talk about a little bit. Is sure. because I mean, well, immediately in the next chapter we will get into like these debates um, happening around Harry, but like,
0: yeah, particularly what- between Moody and Dumbledore.
1: But what is the binding contract? What will actually happen if Harry doesn't compete? Because what we are saying, like you just said, is that in this moment, Dumbledore knows somebody is doing this probably for the express purpose of putting Harry in danger. Yeah. And he's like, cool, going to put him in danger. <laughs> like, what would happen <laughs> if he said, this was clearly a mistake. This was clearly cursed. Mm-hmm. We already got our three champions. We're just going ahead with the three champions you know, this was a fluke, and we're sorry for everyone, but Yeah, anyway. I mean,
0: I think there is some sort of, like, magical compulsion that everybody now has to go along with it. And we don't learn about The Unbreakable Vow until right. the sixth book, but when Rowling uses a term like binding magical contract, that's what my mind always jumps to, is that it's like that. But, but there it's is not- a
1: consequence in The Unbreakable Vow,
0: Right. Yeah. No. So, so your, your question is like, what happens if they yeah. just don't, and I don't know, but, um, it's a plot device essentially to ensure that Harry has to compete, you know, that they can't just right. say like, okay, well, Never mind. Harry, why don't you just like show up on the day and then just disqualify yourself? Yeah. You know, like, don't be stupid <laughs> this isn't real we're not yeah. really gonna force you to put yourself in danger because you clearly it's just a little frustrating because
1: i feel like yes obviously it's magic so like binding stuff means something but you know they could have done a little bit more work here to say like if you don't compete like that person you know something will happen to that person like they will you know uh, have bad luck for seven years or like the school will like bad things will happen to the school. um If you know like specific things, because you know, there's even things in like our world where it's like, this is a binding contract, or, like, if you're chosen for this, like, you will get this. Like, if you're accepted, you know, early decision to a school, like, all these kinds of things. But it's, like, but you can get out of it if you really need right, to. Right, usually you know?
0: it's, like, financial penalties Right, So something. it's, like,
1: okay, like, maybe there's fine, or maybe, like, there's in public embarrassment if you're, like, chosen for something and you don't do it. But, like, you know, th- th- we use the words binding contract, too, when they don't necessarily mean...
0: Yeah, that. and so all we can all we can do is speculate and wonder why. Um, but that's where my mind always goes as to the unbreakable vow. That said, like this doesn't seem like that solemn of a thing. Like you would literally just die if you didn't compete right. in the tournament. But it's probably something like that. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of thing in the Triwizard Tournament that was like you are compelled. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. You don't. You don't get a choice. You are just compelled to do it, and like it's magical compulsion. You know, like you so, have like, to
1: go. I not, almost not like
0: you have to go do it, but like you will want to will, do it. Yeah, it will you force will you to like want to do it.
1: Him. I mean, I almost wish that there was just like one quick line in Dumbledore's speech before, um, you know, before he opens the Gobbler for submissions. Yeah. Where he says something like. I really want you to think clearly, like, everyone to think long and hard about whether you want to enter your name, because, I mean, he talks about how it could be dangerous, but he also talks about, like, if he could just be like, this is a binding, this is a binding contract, and, like, if you don't, this will happen, or, like, even if you just said something like that, I think that would help a little bit in the writing of this scene, because it does feel not, and in the next chapter, too, it does feel a little bit like, okay, but but why really are we doing this? You know.
0: Yeah, and I think the point is that you know the the book needs for this to happen, so it will. But the reason why it has to happen isn't super clear, and there isn't there just isn't really a great no, reason. No, there isn't. Um, and so it it might be a little bit frustrating to a reader, but like in the world, like you know diegetically it it i think it makes sense to yes, it that needs they to would happen. be compelled
1: but back to just like the idea of dumbledore i think this is a good moment we've been talking about this really throughout the whole series but moment to really lock in on dumbledore's some some of his flaws i would say in terms of
0: <laughs> what yes.
1: he puts harry through how he uses harry and also what he what he knows and what he then like doesn't reveal for various reasons, which like are in some ways understandable, but you know, I think we should just start kind of tracking on him and like Certainly next certainly
0: next chapter, um Harry and Dumbledore get some FaceTime and and Dumbledore starts kind of voicing some of his thoughts out loud and so does Moody about what could be going on. So Mm -hmm. um I think this will be something we should get into next chapter for sure.
1: Thank you all for listening to The Harry Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter.
0: If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially how the Goblet of Fire's magic works, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com.
1: You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we meet the competition in Chapter 17, The Four Champions. I'm Madeline.
0: And I'm David. And we'll see you next time
1: on The Harry Podcast. Knox.